Christian Life Church. Whether you're a longtime member or join us for the very first time, our mission is to create environments where people encounter God, resulting in purpose-filled lives based on a biblical worldview. If you're watching on your mobile device, gathered with your family around the TV, or joining with us in person today, we invite you for the next few minutes to join us to worship God, pray together, and hear what His Word is speaking to us today. Our prayer is that you will encounter the God of the Bible who gives strength, encouragement, and comfort. Good morning. Boy, this is, this is looking great in here, and I know we have a load of folks in Brown Chapel. We have kids running around like they have come home to a family reunion. Um, we're thankful for the celebration online with those of you that are watching. And uh, let's get right into the Word today. I want to pray for you before we pray together the Lord's Prayer. Um, I, I know um, I, I don't want to sound like a broken record and I don't want to come back every week and just say, hang in there, we're going to get through this. But I do want to say, hang in there, we're going to get through this. Um, he, has, he has not left us as orphans. He is with us. There are incredible things that are taking place in your homes, in your places of business, in small groups that are gathering. He left us the whole armor of God so that when we wear the helmet of salvation, He is giving us hope. When we wear the breastplate of righteousness, He gives us not only the declaration that we are righteous, but the ability to live righteous lives. When we wear the belt of that armor, He gives us truth. And he made a promise. He said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. He said, when you wear the shoes of the gospel, it provides a peace in your heart. We have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We have the shield, which is of faith. And all of it is energized and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So we're thankful for the incredible grace of God. With that in mind, let's pray together the Lord's Prayer. And let's turn our hearts to the word. Let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Over a hundred years ago, a staff member at what would later be called the Moody Memorial Church in Chicago um, was asked, why do these people... Many of them are not Christians. Why do they line up week after week after week standing in line to get in to hear a man preach who as often as not preaches about hell? And the answer was this to, to this reporter. He said, you don't understand when most preachers preach about hell, they act like they are glad people are going there. 
But when D... He said, when D.L. Moody preaches about hell, he cannot ever get through the message without breaking down and weeping. He said, that's why these people who know they are going to hell come to hear him week after week. And that's why week after week people are born anew into the kingdom of God. It was said over a hundred years ago, but I don't think it's more true than it is today. This man said, if the church ever recovers her tears, if the church ever can stop using hell as a weapon against the lost and can recover her tears, then the harvest will come. And loved ones, I believe that's what we are pressing for right now. We are living, I believe with all of my heart, on the brink of a phenomenal thing a harvest that may be unlike any harvest we have ever seen in 2,000 years of church history. But it won't come because of the organization of the church. It won't come because of the man-made rules of the church. It won't come because of the preferences that each brand of church might have. It will come because the church rediscovers her tears and we learn how to walk in a culture being counterculture. I'm not interested in our church seeing how much we can look like this present culture. But if we can walk counterculture and walk counterculture with tears in our eyes, we have a phenomenal future. It's called the remnant church. I don't think that's the characteristic of most churches, but I think it's the characteristic of the remnant church. We've been praying for over four years here in America for revival. We've asked that lies and liars would be exposed. We've asked that truth would rise up and be evident. We've asked that Americans would know what to do, like the men of Issachar, have an understanding of the times and know what we ought to do. And then we have prayed that the church would wake up to her destiny and become the conscience of America again. We are in a situation that it's difficult to fulfill that. I, I want to tell you, I've preached for years that the end time is marked by things that seem contradictory. In the end times, uh, the days in which I think we're living, Peter made this announcement. It shall come to pass in the last days, saith the Lord, he was quoting from Joel, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And upon servants and highborn alike, I will pour out of my spirit in those days, says the Lord. There will be signs and wonders, and whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But there's also a verse that describes the same period of time. Verses that describe the same period of time. It says, in the last days, evil men and seducers, tricksters, will grow worse and worse, both in their deception and in the deception that they offer. Now, we've said for years, uh, you and I have a choice to decide which scripture we're going to be a fulfillment of. 
Is it the one upon whom the Spirit of God is poured out? Or is it the people that walk in deception? We've got to get a grip on this idea of the kingdom of God. It is a time when wheat and tares have grown up together. And it is a time, I believe, from that parable and from the teaching of the book of Revelation, I think it's a time when the goodness of God is poured out in measure and the wrath of Satan is poured out in measure, in, in good measure. I believe it's a time when those that want to be part of the kingdom and a, and a spirit indwelt individual can be that, but it's also a time when the wicked will find a fresh new venue for all of their wickedness. It's a time when it seems counterintuitive because you would think the time would be either all this or all that. But we find that the closer we get to the harvest, wheat and tares have grown up together and it's at that moment that things are, are dealt with. Now we are in a particular place where we've really been brought to school, especially in the last few months. Because we are to be a contrast to wickedness. We are to fight wickedness. We are to stand against wickedness. But at the same time, we are to bless those who curse us. And we're to do good to those who despitefully use us. I am so proud of the church. I'm so proud of Christian life. But I am so troubled. I'm, I'm not a part of social media. I don't have Facebook or anything. Um, um, I'm, I'm not saying that if you do, you're evil or anything like that. I just don't like the garbage. And I just don't like uh, opening my life to the criticism of people that don't even know me. I mean, I just don't want to do that. I don't think it's anybody's business if I'm going to lunch at 11.32. Or, you know, I, I, I don't tweet twat, twat, or anything. Uh, twat. And, um, but I tell you, I, the reason I'm so glad I made that decision is because, and I'm not talking about our church, but I'm talking about Christians. I am appalled at the hostility, the anger, the judgmentalism, the accusation um, that is coming from Christians. Now, again, I want to restate this. I'm not seeing much of this at all from our church. But it is marking the Christian world. And I tell you what I really believe. I believe we have been brought to this place to give us a period of training that we learn what D.L. Moody knew. That hell is real, but I'm not worthy to speak of hell unless I can do it with brokenness. Evil is evil, but I'm not qualified to condemn evil unless I'm doing it with a broken heart. I know that there is a time that we fight. Paul said we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We wrestle with principalities and powers. It's time for the church to learn that our fight is not with Christians with whom we disagree. There will always be Christians that you do not agree with something about. But that's not where we fight. We do not fight. We do not wrestle, Paul said in Ephesians, with flesh and blood. Corey, could you help me again? I keep forgetting my bottle. It's, it's this kind of bottle, though. It's not a jug. We do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but we wrestle with principalities and powers. 
Would you be shocked to learn that one of the reasons God has allowed this pandemic to touch our world and to affect our churches so deeply and profoundly is that God wants us to understand how to fight the good fight of faith without taking up the world's weapons. Paul said, we do warfare, but not as the world does warfare. The weapons of our warfare, Paul would say to the Corinthians, are not carnal. That means it's not mighty. It's not the viciousness of words or the hostility of attitudes. He says, the weapons we use are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. I believe with all of my heart that the main, at least part of the main agenda for the church all around the world, and especially in North America is to learn how to have a good fight, to learn how to fight fair, and to learn to reflect the grace and character of the Lord. Now, this is what Paul's advice to us is in 1 Timothy, um, I think it's chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, yeah, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. He says, when you come together, he said, I want you to pray for kings and governors and those in authority... Why? Why does he want us to pray about kings and governors and those in authorities? Because I want you, this is God's will, he says, to live quiet and peaceful lives. That's the will of God. There's nothing wrong with asking God to give you a quiet and peaceful life. That's the will of God. And he says that's why you pray for your authorities, because if your authorities are prayed for, you stand a better chance of having quiet and peaceful lives. Now, you say, well, yeah, that and let's vote them out. Well, we can do that too. We have a unique privilege in America that a lot of countries in the world have not had until recent times. But do you understand that when Paul wrote these words, uh, a democracy was virtually an unheard of thing? See, Christians in that day did not have the recourse that we've got, and we've been given the gift of, of democracy. And I want to tell you, loved ones, un unless we stop slopping the cup around, we could eventually lose democracy. It takes a steady hand, as I've said, to hold a full cup. And I don't think Christians in general do a good job of walking out democracy. We keep resorting to the flesh. And never have I seen a time when Christians are so mean-spirited as they are right now. You say, Pastor, I don't want to hear that. You just don't understand. Hey, I'm pretty smart. <laughs> I, I understand a lot more than you think I understand. And I think we need to understand that we are often choosing the wrong weapons. You say, well, you know, you're probably going to quote 1 Peter 2. Thank you, young lady or young man, whoever that was. Um, 1 Peter 2.17, Peter gives them four succinct commands. Honor all men. I can do that. Love the brotherhood. I do that. Fear God. Oh, absolutely. And the fourth thing he says is honor the king. Mm. Depends on who's in office. No. You, you might need to pause just a second to understand that he was saying honor the king and the king he was telling them to honor would eventually take his life. He was a wicked man. He was a despot. But he understood that our weapons are not carnal. Peter understood that. Our weapons are not the weapons of this world. He understood that. And I want to take you today to the story where he learned that. 
where he learned that. It's in John chapter 18. It's the story of a man named Malchus. Years ago, I heard Vaudy Lambert, the superintendent of Alabama, preach a, mes a message about Malchus. And I realized that that was probably the first message I'd ever heard about Malchus. And I'm not preaching that message, but he's the first man that ever made me really think about the role of Malchus. When we, when we, we know the story of Malchus is important because it's in all four Gospels. But in Malchus, I mean, in Malchus, in John, we have Malchus' name given. And I think it's teaching us about the importance of what happened that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, keep in mind where I'm going with this is God is wanting the church to regain her tears. You don't have to like something. You don't have to agree with the politics of a party or a person. But whatever method we choose to fight the good fight of faith, we must fight with tears and we must fight on our knees. This story occurs in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus had finished praying, he left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. Now, during the, the, uh, the summer and, and, um, and, and winter, the Kidron Valley, that, that creek bed is often swollen and hard to cross. But during the spring and fall, it's generally just a creek and easy to cross. And that was the way out of the city. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. We know it as the Garden of Gethsemane. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, I mean, he approaches his enemies, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with him. And, Jesus, and when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And we interpret that as an overwhelming sense of the power of God, um, you know, just knock them back. We call it being slain in the spirit, except in our context, it's usually for a blessing to them. It was an overwhelming power of God. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. Now, we don't know if Peter and the rush of adrenaline was just a bad aim, or we don't know if Malchus tried to duck, but he cut off his right ear, and the servant's name was Malchus. And then Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me. Now, just a note for you there, as I said, the story of Malchus is told in every gospel, but his name is only given in John. You say, well, why is that? Uh, is John the only one that remembered? 
No, you find that a handful of times in John. He'll give names and details that are not given in the other Gospels. And the probability is that John's Gospel was written 30 or 40 years later. And names were more, uh, they could use names without fear of retribution. Some of the names they used were people now dead. Um, there's a church tradition that says John was able to name Malchus because Malchus was now himself a believer and that uh, he had come to put his faith in Christ. That's what church tradition says. And, uh, so, and some even said by this time Malchus was, was dead and he was beyond the reach of persecution. So let's talk about a couple of questions today. Um, we want to talk about Malchus, who he was, and what we need to grasp from this story. And then I want to speak to you if you are a Malchus yourself. If you are a person that has been hurt by the people of God. Thirdly, I'd like to talk to you if you might be a Simon Peter. You might be the one who's wielding the sword. You might be the one that did the swinging. You say, well, I don't know, Pastor, I could be both of those. Well, most of us are. Most of us have had Simon Peter moments when we did something stupid and somebody paid the price for our, our carnality. But most of us have been hurt by good people. And loved ones, hear me, as we go into this harvest, when all of this is over and, and we're at the next place, the question is not going to be what you think it might be. The question is going to be what have we learned as we walk through this moment of pandemic? Who was Malchus? Well, um, not trying to bore you with Greek, but there's, uh, the, there's a definite article used in the Greek text, which means not a servant, but the servant, this particular servant uh, of the high priest. And that tells us that Malchus was probably um, certainly a high-ranking participant and maybe even the organizer of the quest to arrest Jesus. He was a special deputy of the high priest. And as a deputy of, of um, Caiaphas, he would have been at the forefront of the confrontation. Now, so you've got the man who is probably organizing and leading this named Malchus. He's leading the charge. And boy, this was a tough group to lead. The words used by Matthew and Mark are the words describing a mob. Basically an un, almost uncontrollable, unauthorized, undisciplined mob. Now with this mob, you have a mixture of the temple police... And realizing that this could be trouble, either controlling the mob or arresting Jesus, the temple police had tried to arrest him at least twice, and he got away. You guys still with me? Okay. And um, so they said, we're going to ask for some support from the Romans, and we'll have some Roman soldiers that come with us. So you've got a group of, of radical, uncontrollable mob members. You've got a handful of the temple guard, you've got a Roman contingent sent there to keep order. And at the forefront of this is this man named Malchus. Now, Peter, uh, God bless him. You say, was Peter wrong? You know, sometimes it's hard to define who's wrong. Not because you can't find guilt, but because there's so much guilt to pass around. 
And this was a moment when certainly Malchus was wrong and he was leading people that wanted to, to undo the life and the ministry of Jesus. That was certainly wrong. And Peter was certainly wanting to defend Jesus. He had made the promise, Lord, all men may forsake you, but I'm not going to forsake you. And to Peter's credit, at least he said, I'm not going down without a fight. And Lord, this will give you time to get away. But something was happening. Now, hear me. This is what's happening. Sometimes the church stands in culture as contrast and conditioning. We stand in culture as light. There was a time in America when the church was viewed as the conscience of the nation. Um, everybody, whether they were Christians or not, knew they would have to answer to the church. There was a time in America when nearly 70% of people went to church and there was a time in America when it's estimated that over 85% to 90% of people believed in Christianity, whether they were Christians or not. And the church had a relatively, relatively easy job serving as the conscience of a nation. Monday morning newspapers, almost without exception, the bulk of the Monday morning newspaper was recaps of the sermons. And and everybody was conditioned by the influence of the church. But there are other times that the church is not just light. The church is not just a conditioner. Uh, in fact, the church has mitigated the nasty elements of society for generations. But sometimes the culture rises to a point of such visceral hatred of the church that the church has to find a way to stand against evil while still loving the culture. That is where we are. And loved ones, I want to tell you, I, I believe in the political process. My vote is very important to me. My political view is very important to me. But we must understand, and yours should be to you, but you must understand, you've got to put down the weapons of politics. You've got to put down the weapons of the flesh. You've got to put down the weapons of hatred. And there's only one way the church can rise up and be what she's called to be, and that is to learn the lesson. Because I'll tell you what Jesus will do at the most unexpected times. He will bring the headwaters of the church into confrontation with the headwaters of society. And then it's our job <coughs> to let our light shine. I believe that's where we are. There is such a visceral hatred of Christianity in America right now by many people. And my concern, loved ones, please hear me. My concern is that I'm not sure we're responding with less hatred. I heard somebody's very wise statement just a few days ago say, I'm not disappointed in the way the world acts. That's the world. That's, that's their nature. That's the way they're supposed to act. But what disappoints me is that the church, at least he was talking about on online media, um, uh, uh, social media, he said the church is responding with the same type of visceral, the same kind of visceral hatred. And the, the Christians that we're cheering on are the ones that have learned how to apply the most painful zingers to the lost. Loved ones, something's got to happen. 
And I want to tell you, you can rebuke the devil and you can hate the world, but I believe with all of my heart that Jesus has brought Malchus and Simon Peter together. That's where we are right now. Now, before I go on, let me just, for the record, is there an amen anywhere? Just, okay, okay, just checking, just checking. Why is this story so important? Why is it in all four Gospels? There's a lot of stories that aren't in all four Gospels. In fact, especially John. John gives a little extra detail. Um, um, John, um, 91% of John's writings aren't in the other Gospels. So it's not like John was just wanting to rewrite the news. But it's very important. Now, and, and I'll tell you something else. Um, um, Luke's gospel tells us something the other gospels don't tell us. It says that Jesus touched him and healed him when his ear was cut off. Now, I, I don't know if that meant Jesus just touched him and a new ear grow, grew. When I was a children's pastor, I had a group up front acting it out. And I had a guy cut off another guy's ear um, with a very safe sword. And I had Jesus. I said, now, Jesus, heal him. And this is the way he did it. He reached down, picked up the ear and went <laughs> and stuck it back on his buddy. I, I don't know. Hey, Jesus spit, healed a blind man. I, don't, I wouldn't mind Jesus spitting on my boo-boo. I tell you, that'd be fine. But Jesus healed him. So here's a man, kingdom versus kingdom, head-to-head -head conflict. The church responds well-intentioned but poorly. Jesus rebukes him and Jesus heals the one that had been hurt. What do we gather from that? Well, number one, uh, there in your notes under letter D, I think, it shows that Jesus willingly gave his life in a full commitment to the Father's plans. They had tried to arrest him before, but Jesus would get away. There were a couple of times, at least two times, when the, when the tension got so hot around Jesus that he withdrew and went to another area. So Jesus wasn't finally cornered. Jesus gave his life a full commitment to Father's plan. And I think a secondary lesson is that Jesus wanted to let us see again in one of his last actions before he was taken prisoner, he wanted us to see his commitment to protect his disciples. I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. No one can snatch you out of my hand. You know, when Jesus said, I am he, he took the focus off. The, why in the world didn't they arrest all the other disciples? You would think anybody would know to do that. Jethro Gibbs would do that. Steve McGarrett would do that. But they let them all go. Why? Because Jesus took the attention off of his disciples and he said, I am he. They fell back and he said, look, if you're for me, here for me, let these men go. They are not who you are looking for. So Jesus shows his commitment to care for us even at the expense of himself. And Finally, I think it was Jesus, just another instance of Jesus revealing his mercy by the healing of Malchus. Now, what do we remember when these Malchus moments come? Then I'm going to get to those of you that are here that are Malchus, those of you here that are Simon Peters. Um, first of all, make some very good observations. You may find it surprising that Malchus moments occur 
in the very presence of Jesus. That's a lesson I had to learn young. I'll never be uh, amazed again, I don't think, by the things that are said and the things that are done in church buildings and church foyers and church parking lots. In the very presence of Jesus, Malchus moments occur. Let me tell you something else about Malchus moments. They are almost always unexpected. We usually have no chance to defend ourselves or take evasive action. They had tried to arrest Jesus before, and there's no indication at any other point in time did they have any weapons whatsoever. This is the point. We seldom, if you're a Malchus, you seldom see the sword play coming. And can I tell you this, loved ones? The greatest hurts in church sometimes come from those with the greatest titles. Might be the pastor, might be a superintendent, might be a head usher, might be a lead deacon, might be a senior teacher. You'd be surprised how many zingers can come from folks with impressive titles. You say, that's what I'm saying. That's why I don't go to church. Well, I got I to gotta just push back a little bit. Though it was little comfort to Malchus, the fact is that the man that heard him was really a good spiritual man that loved Jesus with all of his heart. Now you expect to get hurt from, from people that aren't really good spiritual lovers of Jesus. But sometimes the greatest damage, even a threat to your life, can come from someone that has one of the greatest titles and, and is really, on, on any other day, you would have been glad to be in their presence. Let me say one more thing before we get into the, the, the final part of this message. If you are the kind of person that's been hurt by the church, first of all, welcome to the club. We all have been hurt by the church. I've been hurt by my denomination. I've been hurt by churches that I served. Churches that's, that I've served were hurt by me sometimes. But I want you to understand this. It isn't wise or fair to judge all disciples by the behavior of one disciple. You know, we have people separate themselves from church. They have an opportunity to come into fellowship with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of other believers and be strengthened in the Lord. But because of what one person did to them or because of what one church did to them, I understand. It's, I'm not saying you're silly for acting that way. That's our knee-jerk response. But the fact of the matter is it's not wise to judge the entire church by the actions of one Christian. Okay, how do we wrap this thing up now? Okay, if you are a Malchus, if you are a person that has been church, uh, hurt by the church, sorry to say church, that's a, that didn't come out right. If you are a person that has been hurt by the church, understand that the devil will do anything he can to distort and defile your experience with God's people in order to hinder you from giving your life to Christ. I want you to know that God wasn't behind your hurt. And probably the church didn't mean to be behind your hurt, but I can tell you who was behind it. It's the enemy, and he always strives to distort and defile um, your experience with the church to keep you from joining the church. And I'll tell you something else if you're a Malchus. This Malchus, the original Malchus, 
models for us the need to accept healing and help whether or not an explanation or apology comes from the swordsman. You say, well, that, that's not the way it ought to be, Pastor. Apologies ought to be made and Jesus was just getting arrested. Yeah, but I think in a little capsule form, I think what Jesus was saying is even when you're hurt by a good man, healing is available, but it's got to come from my hand, not the swordsman. Let me remind you again, I encourage every member of this church to read the book by R.T. Kendall entitled Total Forgiveness. Now, I realize that these are tough times. A lot of people have lost their jobs and stuff. If you can't afford the book, if you will contact the church and just say, I'd like to get R.T. Kendall's book, we'll, we'll pay for a copy of the book for you. That's how important it is. Um, I recommend R.T.'s book emphatically. Now, you say, oh, you're saying apologies aren't necessary. No, apologies help and apologies ought to happen. The problem is that apologies seldom come. And the ones that do don't seem to be enough. Have you ever been devastated and somebody says this? I'm sorry if you got your feelings hurt. I'm sorry if you're mad with me. You know, they, they put it right back on you. You know, um, <clears throat> apologies help, but they seldom come. And the ones that do seldom seem to be enough. That's not negating the need for apologies. But I learned something years ago. I say I learned it. I hope I've learned it. I became aware of it and I'm trying to live it out. I, you know, I was so mad with somebody one time. I said, Lord, you don't even forgive people unless they ask you to forgive them. So I'm just going to be like Jesus. I'll forgive when they bow to me and ask for my forgiveness. But can I tell you what I learned, loved ones, the hard way? Oh, I, I, I can't even say I've, I learned it. I'm learning it. But can I tell you what God set me on a path to understand? You and I forgive, you know, the Lord's prayer, forgive us our sins, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. God forgives because he's God. God requires repentance because of the nature of who he is. I forgive for no other reason that I, than that I have been forgiven. Because of my great debt that has been forgiven, it is compulsive to me to forgive others. You remember the story Jesus told about the one and. I don't remember the, the, the amount of the debt, but we'll just, we'll just use Americanisms right now. Uh, I, I, he said there was a man that was forgiven a $5 million debt, just forgiven a $5 million debt. And he goes out happy that he's been forgiven and he finds somebody that owes him five bucks. And he takes that one that owes him five bucks by the throat and says, pay me what you owe me. And he makes the same appeal that the man forgiven five million bucks just made. But instead of forgiving because of being forgiven, he throws him into jail and says, you'll stay there till you pay back every penny. We must not allow that to happen. We must not hold people liable and accountable for $5 when the grace of God has erased $5 million from our lives. I forgive because, not because things are set right, but I forgive because I have been forgiven. It's a simple but difficult lesson. Don't be ruled 
by hurt and offense and allow the power of Jesus to restore what's been broken. That's what we learned from Malchus. If you are a Malchus, come home. Let Jesus heal you. Don't wait for the church to get everything right. Don't wait for the pastor to get everything right. Don't wait for the offender to get everything right. They're fighting their own battle. There was something that drove them to swing the sword in the first place. If you are a Simon Peter, you've got to remember, loved ones, we've got to remember, especially as we go into this election season, and it's not just election, it's, it's all kinds of emotional dynamics of life. This is always true under every circumstance. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. I don't know how to say that any plainer. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. Remember that this is always worth the extra cost. Paul said to the Ephesians, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. And if you are the one that swung the sword as much as possible, set things right. You know, you know what it's like. We all know what it's like to be just ripped apart by somebody. And then the apology is, well, just forget about that. Just forget I said that. That's not enough. If we have cut people, we need to tend to the ear. As much as possible, set things right. Now, I know this. When you try to set things right, sometimes you can't. Maybe the person's dead and gone. Uh, maybe, maybe, the, maybe we've missed the opportunity. We don't know where they are. Sometimes people won't let us make it right. Sometimes people require more than is appropriate. And that's why Paul said to the Romans, this is such a good scripture, if it is possible, and he, and, he, and he uses two phrases, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I realize that if you've been Simon Peter and you've, you know, ravaged, ravaged someone's life with swordplay, if you can make it up, make it up. If they'll let you, make it right. But don't, don't assume that they have forgotten about it. Okay, um, we have no knowledge if Peter did this or not, if he ever did it or not. That's the way it is with most offenses. Um, uh, sometimes I have found that grievous offenses are carried and the people that have offended us don't even know they've offended us. And so we, we've got to give God some room to work here. One, somebody said one time, we wouldn't worry about what people think of us if we knew how little they do. Uh, sometimes this big, big offense is not even on the mind of the person that did it. Either, either, either they were misunderstood or, you know, you've got to remember, loved ones, and this is, this is little comfort, but hurting people hurt people. And when people are hurting, they may have a church membership card. They may be an official in the church. But hurting people don't produce anything normally other than hurt for other people. And you just got to decide, are you going to let that carry, you know, stand between you and God the rest of your life? Or is it going to be a burden you're going to carry the rest of your life? Or are you going to be able to let it go? And God can help you do that. That's the way it is with most offenses. Most offenses are never made right. 
and, and, most, and most apologies are not on the scale they are given. People will call you trash on the internet and then they'll come to you privately to apologize. People will explode in a meeting and then come to you in a corner to apologize. I think the offense, um, whatever the level of the offense was, the apology should be. But that's in a perfect world and we're not in a perfect world. And if I was in a perfect world, I'd make it unperfect. But here's another thing to think about. Healing was available for Malchus, whether Peter apologized or not. But it would have made the process a lot easier if he did. And can I say this? If you're the one swinging the sword, we're making a case for someone forgiving you. But it may be that you need to do some forgiving as well. What was at the heart of that sword play? What made you lash out that way? Whenever we have a flashpoint that causes us to hurt others, we not only need to try to make that right, but we need to let God speak to us about ourselves. Now, what do we do when all is said and done? Number one, Christian life lessons. Um, I, I don't know if this, I don't think I put this in your notes, but I've got just three quick ones. Remember that the middle ground is being eroded. Because of the age in which we are living, the middle ground. There used to be this view over here that was wicked and carnal. And there was this view over here that was the view of the church. And most people were just on that middle ground. You know, they, they, they were part of this culture, but they didn't, they respected this culture. That middle ground is being eroded. When Jesus was being beaten and abused and misused and on his way to the cross, Jesus said something in Luke 23 that sounds totally unrecognizable to us. He said to the women that were weeping over his barbaric treatment, they, they, and, and you got to understand what Jesus would have looked like. He would have had ribbons of flesh hanging down. He was perilously near death because of the blood loss. Here was a man that was a well-fit carpenter, so frail he had to get someone, they had to get someone to help carry his cross. And they say that by the time Jesus crucifixion was in full swing. His head, because of the beatings and the abuse and the thorns, would have been swollen nearly to the size of a basketball. And what does he say to the women that are crying for him? He says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves because of what is coming. And he said this, for if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done when the tree is dry? And that means like, what does that mean? Jesus was saying, these are not the times that lend themselves to this kind of behavior. Worse times are coming. He says, times are coming that will be so bad unless God shortened the days, mankind would be eliminated. He said, if they're doing this now in relatively good times, what will they do when bad times come? And loved ones, every Christian needs to think about this. We've not been taught how to deal with persecution in America. We have people, when we declare that we're having a, 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 a persecuted church Sunday, people stay home because they say it's too upsetting. We don't know what persecution is. We don't know what it is to be reviled for our faith. But Jesus was saying, you need to understand this. The day is coming when if you can't stand what they're doing in good times with protective laws around you, what will it be like when the green is gone. Jeremiah put it this way. He said, if you can't contend with footmen, what are you going to do when the horses come? 
He said, if you can't stand on level land, what will you do in treacherous land? <coughs> Middle ground is being eroded. But I tell you one good thing about that. I, I, I think I've heard from the Lord on this. I believe we may actually begin to see a decline in lukewarmness. I really do. I think because of this, we may begin to see a decline in lukewarmness. Now, here's number two. Courtesy from the world system will give way to greater vitriol and hatred. Now, you can't say, all right, we got to be tough. We gotta, if we're going to get punched, we need to punch back. Well, I know there's a time to punch back. Uh, but in most of American history, Christian influence has been a moderating of tones and words for the most part. There's been a decency. But I want to tell you, we're already in it. You know we're in it where, and not everybody, thank God, not everybody. But we are in it where it is popular to demand tolerance for every view, every lifestyle, every opinion, except Christian worldview and opinion. We've got to understand, and, and you say, well, what do I, that just makes me so mad. I know, that's why we're going through this. We're going through boot camp. And we're being taught that this is only going to get worse. And Jesus says, don't be surprised if the world hates you. They've hated me. And most of us don't know anything about being hated by the world. I, I'm, I'm not fussing about it. I'm thankful in one sense. But we've got to understand that courtesy is losing ground. The middle ground is being eroded. And the third thing is that it is now time for the church to be known by her love even while she stands strong against evil. How do we do that? Now, first of all, the best way is opposite behavior. When we are cursed, we bless. When we're done wrong, we do right. Um, Sometimes just the contrasting example is enough. This is what the world produces. This is what a Christian life produces. And I know there are times that we have to stand. I, I don't think we ought to become the devil's punching bag. I don't think God requires that. I was counseling a man, nobody in this church. This was years ago when I was younger and more stupid. But this man, he, just, he was known for beating his wife, and she wouldn't bring the police in on it. And she was a member of our church. She'd come to church with black eyes and one time came with a broken arm. And he came to me one time. He said, I need some help. And I, I said, and he was notorious for taking it to a point and then soothing it over. And I said, well, how can we help you? He says, y'all don't understand how my wife, she just drives me to it. I can't control myself. She makes me so mad, I just punch her. And I said, that's not what she does. He, he said, yes, it is. And I, he kept getting madder and madder. I said, I said, you punch your wife because she won't punch back. That's not true. And has she ever punched back? No, she cowers. And I said, well, you're saying when you get mad, you can't control it? Yes, she does that to me. Am I making you mad? Yes. You want to punch me? No. I said, the reason you don't want to punch me is because you know as soon as you punch me, I'm going to punch you right back in the face. <laughs> I said, I'll tell you what your problem is. Your problem is you're a coward and you can beat on a woman that can't defend herself. But when someone stands up and says, I'll punch you back in the face, you suddenly gain control of your temper. 
Now, loved ones, the point I'm trying to make is this, not that pastor went to jail for punching people. <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is this, it is imperative that we understand the balance of when do we stand and fight. Do we do that at a ballot box? That's fine, but do it with love in our heart. Do we do it by fighting uh, the, an, an oppressive government? Yes, but do it with a tear in our eye. We don't need to take on the world's nature to triumph over the world. We have to take on his nature. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, there's a time for everything. Pilate said, don't you know I've got power over you? Jesus said, don't you know all I have to do is snap a finger and you're nothing but a grease spot? Now that's, you, you, some of you are looking at your concordance. That's from the Chitty Revised Standard. <laughs> there was a time that Jesus says, you know, honor your, your leaders. And then there's another time that he called Herod that old fox. But what I'm saying is that Jesus teaches us when we fight in our culture, the appropriate action is what Father speaks to us. Church, I'll tell you what we've got to do. Yeah, we've got to fight ahead. We've got some tough days ahead. But I'm not going to use the weapons of this world to fight that fight. You say, well, we've tried that for years and it's never worked. I doubt you've tried it. I really do. I really doubt we've tried it. We, we've mistaken doing nothing for the gospel. And the gospel's not doing nothing. But it is doing what God says, the way God says it. We haven't passed the test till the church stops getting mad over pastors saying, let's do it God's way. We've got to reach that point. But back to business as we close. There are those of you that are here in this auditorium. There are those of you in Brown Chapel. There may be some of you watching all over the United States. And your problem is that, Pastor, I've been a Malchus. I've got a wound that just can't heal. And I need Jesus to, to touch me and heal the wound. Even if it means he picks it up and spits on it and rubs the dirt off. I need Jesus to do a work of healing in me. I want you to know that he is still the healer. He is still the healer, not just of physical bodies, but of emotional scars. Some of you may be a Simon Peter, and quite frankly, you love the Lord with all your heart, and you're a good person, but you've been lulled into the trap of using the world's weapons to right the opposition to what you believe is right, to correct the opposition to what you believe is right. Whether you're a Malchus or a Simon Peter, you need the healing presence of Jesus. You need to take a step back and let your world be governed by the dynamics of the spirit instead of the dynamics of the flesh. You say, Pastor, I could, I could fall in either camp. I know that's where I am. I'm, uh, my, my name is Malter or, uh, or, P, or, you know, or Picus, I don't know. <laughs> I've failed on both sides of the issue, but loved ones, I can tell you this. I'm not perfect, but I can tell you this. I'm not here as a perfect person, but I'm here as a forgiven person. I'm here as a learning person. I'm here as a person that has been healed and is a healer. Father, thank you for this wonderful day together. Lord, you're raising up your church. 
You are establishing a remnant. You are getting us ready for an incredible harvest. Lord, we're not having services online just to hold things together. We are preparing ourselves to march to the sound of a different drumbeat. We are, we are preparing ourselves to be a very bright light during very possibly dark days. So we say, come, Holy Spirit, fill our lives. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Loved ones, if you want prayer to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, um, uh, we're going to ask you to come forward and we have a place that you can slip off out of the way of the crowd to be prayed for. I'm sorry, we don't have the number ready this week, do we? We'll have it next week. We should have had this from the beginning. Those of you that are watching online, if you are there and you need prayer or you want to give your heart to the Lord, we've told you just to contact the church, but we will, we will do this hopefully beginning next week. We'll announce it when we're ready, but we're going to have a phone number where you can call and people will be ready to pray with you you at the end of the message. I'm so sorry we didn't think of that earlier. We're just, uh, we're all walking in some new territory. But get a hold of the church or, or, or call a church near you that's a Bible-believing church. You are able to experience the grace of God right where you are. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. Let's close out, uh, whether at home or here, with a prayer and asking God to bless us. I love you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining us in worship today. I hope you'll be with us for our live stream service next week to encounter his presence. If you'd like to know more about the mystery of Christian Life Church, please visit our website at clcolumbia.com or call us at the church office at 803-798-4488. The Lord bless you and keep you. Have a great week.